Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. Land is not only something to be owned, to control, to do with whatever you want. It's not to be dominated or utilized most efficiently to extract as much production and profit from it. Land is not to be owned privately. It's not to be commodified and turned into a capital asset. Now, this might all sound very radical, but dating back to... Pliny the Elder, and before that to the Greeks, it has become incredibly obvious that the large landed estates and ranches of the extremely wealthy will eventually destroy society, as it did for the Greeks, and they knew it, as it did for the Romans, and they knew it, and as it appears to be doing to us now. Unless we reconsider our relationship with land and all the nature that occupies it, we will destroy society again. If the powerful who benefit from this disaster have their way, we'll continue down this path, believing their powerful narratives that overpower every other analysis and insist that if there is anyone to blame for our current state of crises, it's the powerless, the actual victims of the powerful. The powerful blame their victims to rationalize the continuing of the political economy that benefits them, a political economy of commodification and globalization that is the root cause of the crises we face today, including climate change and the pandemic. That power must be challenged or we will be forever locked in their system that rewards them for deforestation, which causes pandemics that lead to more profits for the powerful whose market constantly rewards their destruction of our planet. Today, we'll try to do what we need to do to stop pandemics, and that is reconsider our relationship with the land. And a few, when we talk to disease ecologist Luis Fernando Chavez, who is co-author of the Pandemic Research for the People paper, scientists say land use drives new pandemics, but what if land isn't what they think it is? Pandemic Research for the People is a people-powered effort aimed at conducting research that will directly help global communities most impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find out more at prepthepeople.net and follow Prep on Twitter at PrepTheWorld. Luis is International Coordinator for the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps, which you can find out more about at A-R-E-R-C dot WordPress dot com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing this show, this morning show. If it is Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, what's new by you? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Anything new? Oh, not much. Got a nice, had a nice uh, little, wasn't really a hike. It was more of a stroll this weekend. Where'd you end up going? (laughs) Uh, A friend and I went to Deer Grove. Where the hell is that? It's Palantine. (laughs) Lovely Palantine. It's it's just a basic uh, forest preserve kind of thing. They have a nice five-mile loop around the park or around the forest preserve. Is it hilly at all over there or is it just Eh, flat, flat, flat? There's like maybe one hill, but but it it was really bizarre because um, 
because, well, it's the first week of April and it hasn't rained for so long. Right. Like there's no greenery whatsoever. Uh-huh. It looked like an apocalypse. Like, <laughs> Did it like, really? A, like a winter apocalypse. It was pretty amazing. Even though it's like 70 degrees outside? Yeah, exactly. That's really weird. <laughs> was there a ton of garbage? No, no garbage. I mean, no, the park was, the, the area was clean. The park was, or the forest preserve was clean. Oh, but they did, it was kind of funny. They were doing like some uh, controlled burns in some like areas. Uh-huh. And so there was like, sm- like different little areas of like smoldering ash, which just added to the <laughs> apocalyptic feel. Oh my God, it sounds crazy. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I went over to uh, West Ridge, uh, what, Nature Center, Nature over by Western and Bryn Mawr, and uh, there's a few deer living it, and it's kind of cool to see deer like three feet away from you. See them, they actually get close enough that I can see them. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think <laughs> we only saw one snake and maybe a f- fleeting glimpse of one deer. <laughs> I was all excited about this weekend about possibly being able to actually be part of the general population again after I get my second vaccine a week from today. And then waiting the necessary two weeks, meaning that by May Day I could actually hang out with a small group of people probably still socially distanced and wearing masks because of a lack of herd immunity and still fearing that I could transmit the virus to my girlfriend who was yet to get her first dose of the virus. But still, by the end of the month, I figured I would have some sense of safety and security for the pandemic they have not had for over a year. That's when I found out yesterday about the current surge in God's little mitten in Michigan, the state I was supposed to be visiting in the very near future. In that surge, which is happening mostly, well, not mostly, predominantly in Trump-supporting areas, people who have been vaccinated are getting reinfected, and a few fully vaccinated seniors have died weeks after getting their second dose. So nothing's conclusive yet. They don't know which coronavirus they died from, if it was a variant, which vaccine they took, but the first suggestion is that vaccines may not be fully effective for Maybe three weeks. Maybe more. So thanks, Lucy, for pulling the ball away again. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? (laughs) What are you getting? And I'm not sure if people understand what the Faustian bargain (laughs) is. From how how serious it is. <laughs> because people are not making very good bargains, are they? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we're announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff reflects on how Godzilla and King Kong massacre our fear of massacres. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? And as Richard suggests, you may want to look up Faustian bargain (laughs) before answering the question. So, Somebody, a listener apparently, is behind on their listening of This Is Hell. We get it. We put out a show every day, not once a week or once a month or whenever we feel like it. Like, you know, podcasts, most podcasts do. But that, that's because we're not only a podcast. We're, we, we're first a live radio show, and then we became a podcast and a live stream. For nearly 25 years, we're, we've been doing this, so it's 
I understand it's hard to keep up with all the different episodes that we've done. We've done thousands. So back in late January and early February, like a lot of podcasts and radio shows apparently, we were being inundated, swamped by requests from people working with Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant and the Socialist Alternative. And a lot of podcasts suddenly had Shama on their shows, proving the campaign by Socialist Alternative to get Shama out in the ether, in the zeitgeist, actually worked. We got a few requests from representatives of the organization Shama belongs to, again, Socialist Alternative, which is an organization fighting for straight-up socialism, not only the Democratic brand of DSA socialism. So we asked listeners, as we asked listeners last summer, as we have asked listeners many times over nearly 25 years on air, should we have politicians on the show? From the outset, we have said this is not the media, this is hell, and we meant it, in that we would not have on our show the typical talking heads from big business or big politics who dominate the corporate establishment media, which controls the political discussion and debate in the United States. But it was more a guideline than a rule, so we wanted to know again how the listeners felt about having a politician, specifically Shama Sawant, who has done a lot of good work in Seattle and is not a member of either of the two major political parties on This Is Hell. And for the umpteenth time, which is not a number apparently, you said, you, all of you listeners said, a resounding no to any politician on the show. We even had someone who worked with Shama, who admires Shama. They wrote to us still saying, do not have any politician, including Shama, on the show. It would be a mistake. We haven't talked about having Shama Swan on for over a month. And then we got this email from Ari last night. Ari writes, the Shama Sawant question is crap. Y'all interviewed Dennis Kucinich. Why not Shama? Ari is correct. We did interview Dennis Kucinich back in 2004 when he was running against John Kerry to be the Democratic Party's candidate against the incumbent George W. Bush in that fall's election. And I regretted doing that interview while I was conducting it. And I regretted it more every day since I did the interview. I was so annoyed by the time it was over when I asked Dennis Kucinich why he didn't run for president as a third party candidate, candidate which might push the Democratic Party away from John Kerry's pro-war on terror stance. Yeah, a year after the U.S. was lied into a war, the Democrats were running candidates supporting that war. Jesus. When I asked why not third party, Dennis replied, asking me how many wings the bald eagle has that he sees every day when he enters the Capitol. So I said, I don't know, three? To which he corrected me and then went on some rant about the greatness of our two-party system, which was just idiotic. In the past, we also had David McReynolds on, who was uh, running for president on the Socialist Party ticket. He was boring. Back in 2004, we talked to Ralph Nader's running mate, Peter Carnejo, who seemed like a solid guy, but all we got out of that was vote Nader. When we eventually did have Ralph on the show when he wasn't running for anything, we thought like all the other politicians we had on the show, would at least be introduced to new listeners. And that never happens. We have no idea why, but every time we think we'll have some famous politician on the show and we'll get a bigger audience, never happens. And again, this is not the media, so we should not be chasing listeners anyway. In 2015, just as Bernie Sanders launched his presidential campaign, his campaign reached out to us on several occasions, asking if we wanted to have Bernie as a guest. We did not say no. We were so disinterested in having any politician on the show at that point 
We didn't even respond to their many inquiries. When they sent us his book on a couple of occasions, I don't even know if we have it anymore. I don't know. Do we, I don't think we gave it away. I don't think anybody wants it. Sure, if we had Bernie on, we may have gotten a few more Patreon subscribers. But I don't even know if that's going to be the case. It never has happened in the past when we do these kind of stunts to get more listeners. So, Ari, and to everyone still concerned about this in any way, with the vast majority of listeners telling us to continue to not have any politicians on the show, I'm afraid, Ari, you'll have to listen to Shama Suwan elsewhere. And as she has done dozens and dozens of interviews since Socialist Alternative has been on this campaign of getting her on the air, they're not too hard to find. You, too, can email us at chuckatthisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Coming up, if we don't want future pandemics, we got to fix our relationship with nature. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell dating back to the beginning of what we can call Western civilization. There is evidence on top of evidence that shows private ownership of land will lead to concentrated wealth, and that wealth will cause such problems that society will collapse. And it looks like our screwed-up relationship with nature is about to collapse again, this time under the weight of pandemics, pandemics that actually cause us to not reconsider our relationship with nature, leading to our societal collapse even faster. Here to help guide us out of this Vicious cycle, I hope. Disease ecologist Luis Fernando Chavez is co-author of the Pandemic Research for the People paper. Scientists say land use drives new pandemics, but what if land isn't what they think it is? Welcome to This Is How, Luis. Uh, hi, Chuck. Thanks for the invitation. You can find out more about Pandemic Research for the People by going to prepthepeople.net, and you can follow that organization on Twitter at PrepTheWorld. Luis is International Coordination Coordinator for the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps, which you can find out more about at arerc.wordpress.com. So the paper you co-author, it starts by stating some of our brightest minds practice a way of understanding the world that is known as reductionism. When trying to understand complex systems and concepts, many scientists reduce an inconceivable whole into more digestible bits, into conceptual fragments that are taken in isolation as representative of an elephant at its, as its toenail. The approach has its place in the world. Sometimes the whole is the sum of its parts. But in categorizing land use in terms of space, mode of production, or crop alone, many scientists appear to accept such reduced properties as the natural order of things for such a vast phenomenon. In doing so, the scientists tether the society that depends on their work to a rigid view of the human as both outside land and inherently unnatural. Luis, how does reductionism, when it comes to our understanding of land, how does it make humanity unnatural? Uh, well, I mean, there are like all these set of assumptions we have about how things are, uh, what constitute the stuff, uh, and again, that, that makes things unnatural. Like one of the best examples is now, like why do we need to buy bottled water? Uh, our ancestors, I mean, historically, even you can think of wildlife animals. 
uh, all of them drink water for free. No, the water is there, the air is there. Uh, and then if you see, if you start to reduce things, if you start to get like into these uh, questions of use, no, like what's the land use, what's the water use, or like we need to use water for this, we need to use things into productive things that make money. Uh, we lose all of these natural relations that were in place uh, when we appeared on, on the planet Earth and things become natural. That's the way I see it. Uh, right now we are selling water and we are buying water. Uh, in the future, it might be air. And that's probably the, the main thing. Yeah, I keep uh, fearing that we're going to be somehow charged for sunlight in the future. Why is this reductionism pursued if it places us outside of the land we need to survive? Why would we want to disconnect ourselves from nature? How do, how do we benefit from that? Well, I think a lot of that is related to how science has been developed, especially in the Western world. And I mean, the, the way in which we understand the things we create, for example, a lot of these things of reductionism come from metaphors, uh, like the thing, all oh, the world works like, like a clock. So, and, and if you see like a clock is a human creation, we put in place the things for the clock. We know what are the elements, we know how do they work. And then they can, for example, a clock can measure something that we call time, which at the end, if we think is something that the way we understand it, it's also like a, a human creation, no? a socially construction. Uh, if you think, for example, uh, the conception of time across societies changes, no? Like, like, for example, I live in Japan. If you talk in Japanese, like the, the future tense, no? like I will do, that doesn't exist. They don't have like a structure to do that. The way you refer to the future is tomorrow I do. And I mean, even like I'm a native uh, Spanish speaker, when you think about the Spanish as compared to English, we actually have like a lot ton of, of, of uh, verbal tenses and stuff to, to describe a specific moments of what we might relate as time. And that actually leads to a, to a totally different conception of how things work and how things are. So in a sense, I think, uh, I feel part of it is the easiness, part of it is the, the way we have been trained to think about things, no like, oh, like, like everything like a, a chemical reaction, you no, know? like if you have hydrogen and oxygen, you get water. But the thing is, yes, you get water, but for example, even if you think in, in, re, in reactions like that, uh, as you said, you need some sort of, of energy and stuff driving up things that get somehow out of the equations and stuff. And, and it's interesting because that's when you get to the larger issues of capitalism, you no, know? for example. Like if we put value to things, we put price, we can trade them on them. We can artificially uh, get up uh, overvaluating things that are not valuable and actually losing the things of thing or losing the value of things that are really valuable and essential for life. Like we just talk about uh, water. Uh, it can be the case for air. And I mean, this can lead to things as you mentioned, like issues with climate change of what the main point of our dispatch was uh, to discuss the origin of the pandemic, no? So does science then attribute a value to goods? Is, is science complicit with capitalism in the commodification of land? Well, it's actually providing a, a framework for it. And that's something I find startling as somebody that was trained as an ecologist, no? There is all this uh, new science of the ecosystem services, no? Where we should therefore uh, assign values to things. So like we say, 
oh, the forests are valuable because they produce water, which is necessary uh, for the culti uh, for the plantations for uh, to cultivate food the, that's valuable for us to drink and stuff. And, and actually, I think somehow the science is not as critical as it should be of, of, of socially constructed times, and it gets totally entangled into this thing, actually validating and even formulating the conceptions that are necessary for things to, to, uh, to function the way they need to function. No? It is interesting if you check the dispatch at some point, we even side marks and we, we, we refer to a phrase he has on the, on the German ideology, no? where he says that uh, at any time, no, whomever has the money and whomever rules, it's the one who sets the, the conceptions, no, or whatever we need, or, or the ways we understand the world. And I think that's what's happening. The quote that you uh, cite in your uh, writing, uh, that you've, your, the piece that you co-authored, you quote Karl Marx warning that the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas, i.e. the class which is the ruling material force of society is at the same time its ruling intellectual force. How much do we recognize that the ideas that rule are the ruling class ideas to keep them the ruling class? To what degree do we do we recognize that our, you know, most of our thinking is being guided by ideas that just reinforce the ruling class? Uh, I think it differs a lot from place to place. No, uh, in some places it might be totally inadvertently there might be like a consensus. It might be a thing that. Uh, we totally un unconsciously accept, no? In some other places, there might be some reaction, no? For example, if you see uh, in Latin America, there has always been this struggle with revolution after revolutions and, and uh, forces from, or non-traditional non forces or political organizations or, or, or people's organizations, no? Uh, getting into the power because they are actually critical of these things. So I think uh, a lot of it depends on how much people get embedded into the society as a whole. No, it's like the things you were discussing uh, even before you called me in, like, oh, uh, what's for the mainstream media? What's for, for places like this is hell, no? Uh, if we get too much into the, into, the, into the main media, we might not object to it, no? Like we, we accept things as they are and they actually reflect pretty much what Marx said. But if you are in the global south, uh, the conception of time, for example, might be different. No? So like people get to talk to each other, they get critical, they can organize, and actually they can be critical to what, to what wants to be imposed. Uh, I have seen that, for example, many times here in Costa Rica, like at some point I remember here in the Central Valley uh, where San Jose is located, the capital of Costa Rica is located, they wanted to put a garbage dump next to the uh, rivers that actually feed with water, the drinking water of the people. And actually people reacted against that and it was never made because there was like a popular movement uh, movement against that. And, and I mean, uh, it depends a lot on, on the context of the society. I think uh, a lot of it depends on how much control are the relations among people, no? For example, I see there is not so much of an introduction of being all the time uh, stopped to Twitter uh, from people here in Costa Rica. But for example, if I go to the States, everybody's into Twitter. And it's like the question that I ask myself, you no, know, like, do they people talk to other people or do they only tweet, for example? And those are the things probably we need to think about, no? 
So must capitalism divorce humanity from the land in order to be successful? Can there be a capitalism that is not divorced from the land? Can capitalism succeed if it is understood that there is an interpersonal relationship with nature? Uh, that's a pretty good question. Um, it is, again, it depends. Like you have all these tenets of getting value out of everything. If we keep thinking on that way, uh, probably capitalism as a dominant force for everything has no place on the planet unless uh, we want to end life on the planet or stuff like, or, or alternatives like that. As to whether we need to, as to whether there are opportunities or, or other ways to find capitalism, I'm probably not the most qualified person to, to answer that specific question. Uh, but I think uh, the conflict uh, depends on what do we get into the realm of what capitalism work and stuff, no? Like, uh, and again, we can look at things historically, no? Like in other societies, there has been uh, a structural uh, class and stuff and, and, and things, and like the things like what people might call like the reward for me for working more than the other or, or, or things like that, but they don't necessarily go to the stream where they actually destroy society as a whole. No? And, and I found that very interesting. For example, like in China, and that's one of the examples we, we mentioned, no? actually when the Chinese, the most, the golden age of the Chinese empires, no? like the, the, Tang, the Tang dynasty, that was like the most advanced uh, of the classical past uh, societies that we can think of, like they were an example of gender equity and, and stuff like that. Actually, for them, it was like out of question that land should can be a commodity. Yet at that point, there were like rich people, no? Like the, the annihilation of the human uh, will, no? Because that's something like the, when you get into the capitalist discussions, they tell you, no, like, but you don't get rewarded for your effort and stuff. Uh, well, that, that didn't, I mean, you can still be rewarded and get recognition and stuff. Uh, but it can be on a different way, no? And, and it doesn't meet uh, in a way where you have the power to destroy the means for living of other people, no? And, and that's where I think it's enriching looking into what other cultures are doing uh, right now or what they have done in the past, no? And, and I mean, even like within what we can call an, an imperialist uh, setting, no? As it was the case for the, for the Tang dynasty that that it's a historical moment where China actually even expanded its borders. We are speaking with disease ecologist Luis Fernando Chavez, co-author of the Pandemic Research for the People paper. Scientists say land use drives new pandemics, but what if land isn't what they think it is? Pandemic Research for the People is a people-powered effort aimed at conducting research that will directly help global communities most impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find out more at prepthepeople.net and follow Prep on Twitter at PrepTheWorld. So, Luis, how does the alienation of land and labor drive pandemic outbreaks like COVID-19? Well, that the the basic mechanism that we uh, propose, and actually, it's not that we propose; it's uh, uh, the things that people in the uh, ancient ages, no, Pliny the Elder, no, during the Romans, they noticed this. Uh, when there is a dissociation between land, and I mean, like land doesn't belong to to who works 
to the people that work on the land, but land belongs to someone else so that whomever gets uh, fruits uh, and food in general from the land needs to get a piece of that pie, even though didn't, they didn't do anything. They just have like this idea that they own the land and that they have a right over what other people are doing there. Uh, that can drive the pandemics. Uh, why? Because uh, there might be like this need to have more, more and more. And when there is no restriction, no, when, 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 the, when the land doesn't, uh, is used to, to, to fill the purpose, no, that, that it might have, and actually that's what in nature have, no, like, like sustaining, like food webs, no, like the, the providing, I don't know, the plants that some animals eat, and those are the animals that other animals eat. So when that's taken away, no, and when it turns into something that's to make someone that's rich, richer, or actually someone that might not be rich uh, into someone that's richer, uh, we can get into the excess, no? We can get into the things of deforesting more and more land, even though uh, we excuse, uh, for example, agriculture or, or whatever things we want to produce in the land, even though there is already enough land to supply what every person living now on the surface of Earth needs. So in that, th in that sense, is I, I think the dissociation actually uh, creates this, this disruption, no, leading to the pandemics. And you point out that many scientists appear to be able to recognize new infectious diseases and their treatments solely in the mirror of the ritual exploitation of the land from which the pathogens appear to originate. So, Luis, how does calling the virus either the Wuhan virus or the British variant or the Brazilian variant or South African variant how could that cloud or lead to a misunderstanding of the pandemic and the cause of the virus? Well, it's interesting because it creates a lot. I mean, it, it, and, and actually you have raised a very good question that, that we also touched upon at some point in the dispatch, you know, that uh, there is like, and, and it's sort of an ideological and even theological imprint, you know, like uh, for some people, the blame of the problems or, or they need someone to blame for their own problems, no? And that's what happened, no? When we say, oh, it's a problem of the Chinese, uh, the Chinese virus, the Brazilian variant, the British variant, or whatever. And then there is no the reflection actually about the causes of why uh, the things happen at the, to begin with uh, in Wuhan when they happen in Wuhan. Uh, then what conditions uh, led to patterns of transmission, for example, that led to the uh, emergence of the British variant and the Brazilian variant, no? Uh, and it gets focalized. It's no, it's a problem of, of the specific people, but there is no wider inquiry into, okay, what were the conditions that led to this in such or such place? And again, it's, it's, this, it's this like situation where instead of putting an effort of getting everyone together to solve the problem. Uh, it's easier actually to blame someone else about the issue and actually to blame someone else in some cases from people that are uh, more deeply interconnected to what created the problem to start with. 
And you point out how capitalism always, uh, often the powerful within capitalism, often blame the victims of capitalism instead of their own impact on the planet. You write Swidden Fallow Architect, uh, Agriculture. Swidden Fallow Agriculture, that isn't tied to export schedules, was long ago established as the most ecological means to cultivate in tropical forest regions. Recasting such rotational agriculture as destructive and coupling it with vilified wet markets and bushmeat reinforces the techno-scientific solutions of the reductionist, increasingly remote expertise of academic and intergovernmental science. So Sidden Fallow uh, Agriculture is recast, it's renamed Slash and Burn Agriculture. How destructive is Sidden Fallow uh, Agriculture relative to other forms of agriculture that are currently being practiced? Are there less ecological means currently cultivating tropical forests that are worse than Sidden Fallow? Well, that's what I have gotten to learn from people that have living, uh, working in the land here in Costa Rica. I was surprised the other day because uh, what motivated that specific uh, paragraph and sentence on the dispatch was uh, an interaction I had with an old lady here in Costa Rica working on, on an area that now has like sugar cane. No? Then we were talking and uh, she was basically saying like how things used to be like before there was like this rotation uh, where uh, the land was being used in patches and things move around and somehow the forest uh, regenerated, no? like the original habitats regenerated. She was saying like how much has the landscape changed? Like a lot of things that she used to enjoy as a child, as an adolescent uh, have disappeared now that she's an old lady. And she was saying, and it's all because now we need to be producing sugar cane, sugar cane all the time for someone else, not for to cover our needs or to cover the needs of what used to be, let's say in technical terms, the markets that we supply that basically was the internal market in Costa Rica. Uh, so it's interesting how this person actually uh, realized that that change you know, of, of needing to, to, to supply someone else. You no, know? uh, And I mean, she didn't talk about globalization, but we can say it's globalization, actually changed the ways in which, in which land was used and managed and actually on a way that we know uh, probably was better to conserve the biodiversity and and probably was better uh, to keep in check all these ecological interactions that might prevent the uh, emergence of diseases like, like the uh, coronavirus. And I think what this lady saw, uh, it's a common pattern everywhere. I, I can imagine these things even happen at some point in the States, but I don't know so much the case, but I can imagine it's the case. Yeah. Uh, you also point out that if we choose to be selectively blind to the real causes of our problems to believe the fable, we can blame peasants and indigenous populations for nature's destruction and the emergence of diseases to the point of assigning their very existence as the major threat to nature's future. Is ignoring the root cause of the pandemic, and that is the relationship between land and labor, and blaming the pandemic on the indigenous, is that the final step in indigenous genocide is ignoring that cause of the pandemic, an act of reinforcing and supporting white supremacy and privilege? Uh, well, it's not necessarily the nice step, the last step. And I actually don't think a genocide like the classical genocides will happen, no? like exterminating people, like actively killing them. Uh, what's happening is like you are forcing people out of their traditional ways of living. And actually, you are 
forcing them because it's like the example I put of this old lady here in, in rural Costa Rica, no? Like she used to do things in one way, now she's being forced to do it into a different way. All her children, all her descendants, descendants and actually they are plenty because uh, I went to one of her birthdays and there were at least 90 that we counted that descended directly from her. Now needs to get engaged into a totally different dynamics and in doing so, there is a lot of their cultural identity that has been lost. And actually, it's interesting to see how, as people get older, they can tell you like how much of the things they used to have had been lost. And actually, it's interesting even to see how this older person, for example, is way healthier than all of her descendants. You know? For example, this specific person, she's totally healthy. She has, I mean, she's on the nights and she has all her teeth. Uh, one of her grandsons, it's actually diabetic. Why those those things happen, no? So, and, you know, that just mm-hmm. make, makes me wonder, Luis, to what degree you think, do you think our, our traditional ways of living an existential threat, not only to capitalism, but to the United States? Well, I think it's actually a major threat because, for example, if, if, People oppose resistance, the markets cannot grow. And then the, one of the tenets of capitalism is that things need to grow forever. If you don't have any space to grow, the system collapses. And in the face of collapse, uh, and this is what Marx says, the only option you have is a revolution to change things. You mentioned the Tang Dynasty. You write about uh, Mesoamerican practices, indigenous practices. Uh, could, could any of these systems, these alternative food systems, could they provide food for as many people as the current industrial, agricultural, globalized model of agriculture does? Yes, and actually that question was asked a few years ago uh, by some people at the University of Michigan, and they actually found, yes, there is enough ways to feed people. And I, I mean, they put it in terms of industrialized agriculture versus organic agriculture. They found there is enough uh, capacity to feed people organically. Now the thing is, and, and it's interesting because there was a full discussion about the topic is the ways in which things get moved around in which, uh, for example, food reaches the market uh, makes that impossible no? because it's well ingrained uh, with the industrial system. And then there is the obvious question, so how do we change that? And, and for example, for me as an ecologist, it's not an easy one to, re- to respond but for example, I can tell you from my experience here in Costa Rica, no? like for example, here uh, we have like sort of two economies. No? We have like the things that we can buy at Walmart or the supermarkets, which are extremely expensive. And it's in a sense even more expensive than in the Southern USA. But then we have the alternative markets, no? like La Feria, things that happen on the, the farmer's markets that happen on weekends where things are uh, like a super fraction of, of their price and they are still enough to feed people. And actually that's where you can explain uh, how people can make a living here in Costa Rica with salaries equivalent to $500 when things are as expensive as you can expect them to be in the Southern US. Wow, that's so, fa- uh, that's fascinating, Luis. And I just want to tell you real quick that that's not something that we would ever hear here in the United States. How much do you think we... Can people in the United States say, I'm not complicit in this because... I just didn't know. 
Well, I think that's the case. And again, that's that's the thing where you have places like this is hell being pivotal, not to, to get the word out there. Okay, look, there are these other alternative realities coexisting with the one we have. Like not everything is what you see on the places where uh, mainstream politicians and non-mainstream politicians get interviewed. And you just mentioned that. So uh, one of the other things that you point out and you were talking about earlier is how uh, the Greeks learned that you that we cannot have this kind of commodification of land. The Romans learned it. You write how today we can recognize the damage that followed. Pliny the Elder remarked the large landed estates and ranches will destroy Italy. The social construction of the land as a good or commodity suggested to Pliny that the alienation of land from people was a swift step to societal self-destruction. So, Luis, if we know this leads to self-destruction, why do we keep doing it? Why are we repeating history? We're always told by the mainstream establishment media that you're not you're supposed to learn from history so you don't repeat the same mistakes of history. Why do we choose to not learn from this history? Well, first, and again, this might be some some sort of bias of some certain uh, Western societies. No, I live in Japan, and the relation with history is totally different. No. Or even here in Costa Rica, the, the relation with history is totally different. Uh, I know where in the States, for example, there is like this idea brought up by, uh, I think was Henry Ford, no? like history is what a thinker's done. Uh, and all we need to care about is what's necessary for me to, to sell whatever he was selling. No, I think first. Uh, so first and all, it's, it's, there is this point, no? Like, why, as to why it happens, it tells you about the level of domination, no? That falling a certain model might have had in places like the United States that you mentioned, but I can imagine also. Well, I know this also happens in some places in Europe, no? But for example, Japan, that's a member of the G7, actually has a different way to this, uh, to look at the things, or, or even China, no? And. Yeah, it, it, there is the point. We know this is nocive. Uh, we have all these things, but then on the other hand, we have the things like there should be no regulations. Uh, that's again capitalism. Uh, socialism is bad. Communism is bad. And then there is actually never a discussion about what things are. And I think that's what what's happening. You no, know? and that's when it's alleviating to have opportunities to express your opinion in places like this. You no, know? that okay, there are other ways to do things. They also work. Uh, they have been successful in the past. They are currently or at this same moment also being successful. No? And probably they are successful uh, while we are facing problems in some other places that don't follow this. So there is this thing about the, the freedom, no? Is uh, the freedom and actually even like the, the individual rights, no? Like what, what goes, what's more important, no? Like the individual right or the commons. And that's like a fundamental question that I don't see so uh, particularly addressed or given the central place it should have and everything goes reviews or everything gets reduced to uh, we should have no regulations because that's bad because, uh, but, and then what's not say is that's, that's bad because if that doesn't occur, capitalism collapses. 
And you point out that runaway land grabs continue today deep into the frontiers of the Amazon, the Congo, and Borneo. The push is propelled by crises of overaccumulation, governance narrowed to a politics around product productivity, and the proliferation of farmland investment after the 2008 financial crisis. The paradox of abstracting land as a financial instrument and rendering land investable is that destroying land makes what little is left more valuable. So as the planet is being destroyed, is it becoming more profitable than ever to contribute to that destruction of the planet? Well, actually, what's uh, especially profitable is to to hold on to whatever has not been dis- uh, destroyed, no? And and actually, that's where, where the value increases. And that's where we have, like, the paradoxical things, like we were mentioning earlier, no, like, why do I need to buy a bottle of water when water was is something that it's in abundance and that I mean like it's essential for life, like uh how things got to the point where it became a business. And again, now we see it with water, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future it'll be also air or as you said, even sunlight. Um yeah, so uh that was this is just a, such a fascinating paper. One of the things I've been thinking about is this idea of returning to normal. And after I, I thought about that while considering it within the construct of uh, the powerful, as you do in your paper, I was wondering, will, will returning to what people are referring to as normal make the already powerful even more powerful than they already are? Uh, I think that's the case. And, and one example I can tell you, and this is like something I have been given some thought, is, for example, something that was tested thanks to the pandemic is the models of um, this model of the remote working. No, So now it's pretty clear that a lot of, a lot of the things can work without people needing to go into a, a working place. And again, from the perspective of whomever is in charge, that's uh, good because people can do the work. You can follow them uh, in a way similar to 1994, no? the, the work for George Orwell. You can be like the camera checking that your employee is doing the stuff. And then on, on the other hand, like it's interesting. When you work in a place, there is a sense of a space. no, and, and that's a little bit uh, related to the idea from Leanne Vitasa Mosake Simpson, no, like the Percy Nations philosopher that we cite in that, that land or the space is a place where people reunite. When you have these things remote, uh, like the opportunities for people to interact and actually get into a deep engage get reduced. So I think actually that model is probably going to be more and more exploited and, and the excuses will be like, there, there will be some excuse, no, like there will be some excuse uh, to support that, even though like the ultimate reason is that it saves quotes, no, that that it makes the rich richer, and and yes, I I see like the image, or I mean like with the business as usual, people will keep even uh, getting richer and richer, and and one of the biggest concerns, and again that's something that has been discussed in in this is hell, uh, we can expect actually more and more pandemics to occur. And I mean, we can even have that uh, where realize, no, like in some, uh, at some point, no, like having the vaccines, the drugs or whatever might be delusionary, no, like there are these things that are happening, like you mentioned in in the town of Michigan, of the Michigan meeting, where we have transmission, where some people have died 
And it is believed that, I mean, there, there, are, there is the actual data, it hasn't been analyzed, but uh, people got the vaccines, people got even the solution, the technocratic uh, scientific solution, and it's still not working. And again, why is that happening? Then the reasons are not being addressed. Uh, uh, probably what you'll get to see in the main media, uh, some uh, scientists uh, arguing for is, oh, we need to develop a better vaccine. And, and when we do that, the problem will be solved. And you cite the 20th century geographer who passed away back in 2001, Milton Santos, writing, Growing unemployment is becoming chronic. Poverty is expanding, and the quality of life of the middle classes is declining. Average salaries are tending to decrease. Famine and homelessness are spreading to all continents. New diseases such as AIDS are settling down, and old ones, supposedly extirpated, are returning triumphantly. Infant mortality remains in spite of medical developments and the dissemination of information. Good quality education is increasingly difficult to access. Spiritual and moral disorders such as egoism, cynicism, and corruption are spreading and intensifying. The systemic perversity at the root of this negative evolution of humanity is related to a broad adherence to the competitive behaviors which presently characterize hegemonic actions. If pandemics are the result of the powerful competing for power, how can you stop that competition for power? What can you do so nobody would ever want that kind of power? Well, the first thing is you need to become aware, no? and that's uh, a bit the idea of bread. No? You need to expose these other ideas of what's going on. And definitely then there is the, the, uh, the action, no? like the, this part where people actually will forcibly need to be organized. I mean, just the same way... Uh, the big media are organized and they have their taboos, they have the, the topics they don't discuss and stuff, uh, but that are anyways important. Uh, we need to fight, we need to create the, the, the spaces to discuss these sort of ideas. We need to, and then we need to get organized actually to push uh, these other ideas, like, like saying the point, okay, look, uh, at the end, all men and women are equal, like all, all human, be all human beings are human beings. All, all of us actually even have this social construct that we all have like human rights. So let, let's, let's get organized and push forward what we want, no? Like, and, and actually let's even try to be rational about that. Like the model you are trying to impose on us is destroying not only us, but it will eventually cut you up. Uh, why don't we get to a solution that it's actually good for everyone? And uh, I think that's something that might eventually happen in the States. Uh, and as I said, that's something that it's more commonly happening in the global, in the global South. And it's, again, things that have historically happened in places, for example, like let's say Japan, no, like in Japan, there hasn't been any bloody revolution, but then they have had these uh, reforms, no, like they have the Meiji reform. So in the Meiji reform, like Japan jumped from being a, a feudal society into an industrial one. It's not necessarily that they wanted to become an industrial one. It's like something they did to keep their identity. They knew that if they kept uh, stuck with the feudal uh, model, their identity will be lost, for example. And that's what happened to some extent in China. That's what happened in Korea. It didn't happen in Japan. Why? Because they, they decided to make the job. 
it doesn't mean that anybody needs to become an industrialized uh, society or oversupplied, or we need to adopt some models, but we definitely need to ask the question that the Japanese ask, and it's like, how do we survive in the system, uh, keep our identity, and, and actually, the largest question, and this is one that's like for all societies, how do we do it in a way that uh, we can socially reproduce humanity, you know, that, that, that humanity can persist in the planet, and not only humanity, but that all the other species can survive within the planet. You also mentioned that uh, racialism and imperialism are melded together from global north to south. The structural racism denounced by the Black Lives Matter movement has a long history rooted in labor needs for plantations and a long continuation in the perverse logic of redlining real estate and gentrification. Political scientist Samir Amin describes such implosions in uneven development in the global south at larger scales as brought on by the core periphery economic dynamics of global capitalism. Even with the emergence of south-on-south exploitation, the capitalist core continues to appropriate land for commodities, driving people and pathogens across borders. So, Luis, does foreign investment to purchase land, foreign investment by the global north, by the U.S., Canada, the U.K., France, does that investment, does that drive pandemics? When, well, that's when, what... Because that's, that's, when we hear this, you know, the global north, the way that they, they brag about this is charitable generosity by investing in the global south. So so is there an increasing likelihood of pandemics by forcing people to move through foreign investment? Yeah, that's definitely the case. And again, that that's things that some scientists have uh, actually realized. In the dispatch, we talk about a uh, recent investigation by Gra- Graziano Cedia, uh, an Italian researcher, and he actually, I mean, took like the public databases, analyzed them. He realized that a little uh, investment from the very rich uh, increases, for example, 1% of their investment uh, increases up to 10%, and that is happening, and that can be directly correlated to the amount of forest that gets uh, destroyed in the global south. Uh, so in reality, that's like the main thing. On the other hand, you have like this other idea, like the, the generosity and the, and the pious uh, behavior, like, okay, let's go um, buy up the forest, let's fence them, let's get them rid of people, and that will solve the problem. And then what's what's happening? Well, that creates a social problem because then those peoples are, uh, their traditional ways of living get cercenated. I mean, they, they are not as lucky as the old lady in Costa Rica uh, that is still survives and that can tell you what it used to be, no? Uh, these people, what it used to be where she lives. These peoples are the ones that end up in the cities that uh, create all the problems in the cities that don't get absorbed by the economies uh, and so on and so forth. And, and actually that's part of the pandemic. And then there are these situations, no? Like where you have even an increase pressure, for example, for, for, for example, let's assume like you used to live in a place where you can eat many animals, no? Now you are forced out of that place of the animals that you used to get for free. Now you can only get one kind of animal or one kind of fruit. If it comes to happen that that fruit is the one that's more likely to have the pathogen. There is totally, it's totally rational. And I mean, it's totally, it's totally logical that you can get infected with the new disease because you have been removed from the place where you used to be and, and probably you need to move more than what you used to move. It's totally plausible that then 
that disease that used to be like a very localized thing can spread pandemically as we have observed with the coronaviruses. Obviously, these are things that if you are well-trained as an ecologist, and I mean, even if you are not trained just like the old lady from Costa Rica, you can discuss and realize. Uh, however, that's what's not happening. No? Like what gets blamed is that the person ate X, Y, or C uh, wildlife animal. No? But if we ask the question, well, why this person eat X, Y, or C uh, wild animal? Why do we have like a super modern city like Wuhan has a, a wildlife market uh, for people to eat, then you get to uh, to get all these uh, to untangle no all of these uh, elements of the history or, or elements of the phenomenon that's happening and that it's leading to the emergence of the new uh, pandemic diseases no. Yeah, and it also just reminds me of how much, you know, when we hear about whatever in the United States we're considering an an immigration problem, how often that immigration problem, let's say it's from a place like Honduras, the solution, the typical solution is, well, we'll just have more foreign investment in Honduras, which in your study points out that that leads to people being displaced, which causes what we see as a problem with immigration. We've been speaking with disease ecologist Luis Fernando Chavez, co-author of the Pandemic Research for the pa- for the People paper. Man, that is really hard to say. Disease ecologist Luis Fernando Chavez is co-author of the Pandemic Research for the People paper. Scientists say hard use land use drives new pandemics, but what if land isn't what they think it is? You can find out more about the organization Pandemic Research for the People at prepthepeople.net and follow Prep on Twitter at PrepTheWorld. I have one last question for you, Luis, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Can we save the world, Luis, and make a whole bunch of money and create all sorts of jobs in doing so? Because that seems to be the Joe Biden plan, that the only way that we are going to be addressing climate change is if it is a way wherein the market can also benefit. Can we save the planet with the market benefiting? Well, I'll I'll give the response that probably people will hate. Uh, (laughs) Actually, we can save the planet. I agree with that. Uh, what I have seen, and again, this is thinking like as, like as a scientist, uh, examining the data, uh, looking at the patterns. I think if we keep into this play of the markets, uh, if we take the, the assumptions of capitalism that markets need to grow and keep growing, uh, what we have seen is that that has created a lot of the problems we are facing nowadays, you know, like both climate change and also uh, the pandemic diseases, for example, and, and other problems we can imagine, problems like immigration, like the one you mentioned, the the people in motion across uh, the landscape of of what we call the the geography of the planet. Uh, I think there is an essential contradiction. If we are planning to do that uh, with with markets and making uh, a few rich and and stuff. However, I do think uh, we can, I'm hopeful, no? Uh, we are able to to run everyone a decent life and and that we can keep in, in check all of these major problems. And, and probably, I don't know, trying to be generous, I'll say uh, 
we don't need to eradicate capitalism, but definitely there's, there need to be some sort of checks, no? because if the things get totally unchecked, totally unregulated, we'll go nowhere. And that's what we have learned so far uh, from things as they have happened up to this date. Luis, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. Again, you have to read the paper. Scientists say land use drives new pandemics, but what if land isn't what they think it is? You can follow, again, PrEP, Pandemic Research for the People, on Twitter at Prep the World. You can find out more by going to prepthepeople.net. And Luis is International Coordinator for the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps, which you can find out more about at arerc.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Well, thank you. And um, I also have a Twitter, no, like at Kimpara Luchap. Okay, then we'll share that thank as you. well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? And Richard doesn't think that some of our readers or listeners know what a Faustian bargain is. Richard, how are people responding to the, to the question from Hell? All right, you're going to have to help me out here if we've uh, repeated some of these. All right. Because it's... A mess? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh... It's possible people weren't tuned in yesterday or maybe weren't listening to the show earlier on our WNUR rebroadcast. Aaron B. says, not sure yet, but most likely diarrhea. (laughs) Did we have that one? (laughs) No, we do not. (laughs) (laughs) And I will continue (laughs) on the list. Mark... A Cleveland, the ability to cease caring about anything, anything at all. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Why would you bargain that? I'm not really not too sure. Well, that's what you're getting. <laughs> exactly. Uh, another Mark says, same thing that other guy got for Easter. I take the blame for everything bad that happens, but I get to walk out the door. Oh, wait, that's my job. Okay. Fabio says, I'm getting hosed. (laughs) What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? I'm getting hosed. That's a good answer. Louis D says, Mike Huckabee tweets saying he wants to be me. All right. And D Ira says, the end of capitalism. (laughs) Capitalism. And A says, I can never get the answer in on time. So I always answer in my head, whiskeys and cigarettes. (laughs) Most of the time it works. (laughs) So John H has an answer here that I am hoping I will be generous in saying there was a uh, autocorrect problem. (laughs) (laughs) An hour of my life for poultry, a sum of 725. A Faustian bargain by definition, but poultry was like a chicken poultry and not poultry. <laughs> All right, so any more? pretty funny. Aaron D. Pot stocks up 400%. <laughs> Mason W. says, Ikarin flight. All right. The real devil was my hubris all along. Ah, uh, see? Jameson K. says, look, I was really, really sick of driving into the office when I could do this at home. Also, he caught me off guard. 
<laughs> so very sorry about that. This, it's obvious, not what I intended. <laughs> Caught me off guard. Uh, that's more. what will happen to that Faustian bargain. Yeah. Nick E says, I'm getting the infinite boredom that comes with immortality. <laughs> so this week's question mail is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever. This is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have the answer your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment Jeff reflects on how Godzilla and King Kong massacre our fear of massacres Richard who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com journalist Cerise Castle Castle on her series A Tradition of Violence the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Sounds like a good time. Yeah, sounds like a blast. She wrote that for Knock LA and Jeff Dorchin will be here as well. Tune in tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream at the same place as well as share it on social media. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. Thanks to Luis for being our guest, Luis Fernando Chavez. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude. But keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>